and welcome to the Data Lab podcast. I'm Joanna McKenzie, I'm Head of Data Science at the Data Lab. Data touches on a variety of topics and sometimes these are literally life and death. We've seen this particularly with the approach to managing the COVID-19 pandemic, but that's not the only space where data can have a big impact on people's lives. One measurement which has been under particular scrutiny in Scotland recently has been drug-related deaths. Scotland is acknowledged to have the highest rate of drug-related deaths in Europe, and in recent times the problem has, if anything, been getting worse. Data can perhaps help here, but it's a sensitive area with many challenges and barriers. So today I'm joined by Lee Barnsdale, Programme Manager from the Drugs Team, and Emma Callanan, Principal Information Analyst from Public Health Scotland, to talk about the role of public health in both recording and also tackling this particular problem and hopefully being able to avoid more of these deaths. So welcome to the podcast. All right, so we'll start by, this is a difficult topic, we're starting talking about drug-related deaths. Uh, But let's start by getting a little bit of background. So Emma, could you maybe talk a little about why is this so important in Scotland just now? So we've seen an increasing number of drug-related deaths in uh, more recent years. Um, The latest figures we have are for 2020, where um, there were 1,339 deaths. Um, Now this, um, if we look back a decade ago, this compares to um, 485. So we're seeing almost three times the number of deaths that we saw 10 years ago, um, which is obviously not a good place to be. Um, And this putting it in terms of deaths per week, that represents 25 deaths per week. Um, And then when we look across the rest of the UK, um, in comparison, if we look at the rate of deaths um, here in Scotland, we're up at 234 per million. And that compares with Northern Ireland, where we see 87 per million. Um, Wales, where we have 52 per million, um, and England, where we have 48. Um, So obviously, Scotland is up there being 2.7 times higher than any of the other countries in the UK. Um, So it really is a topic, um, an area that's um, getting the political impetus as required to, um, we want to be reducing those numbers and seeing them um, going down because all these deaths are uh, preventable. Um, And so um, our work at looking at the numbers is trying to understand the situation and trying to understand how we can work towards reducing those numbers, providing um, the care and the help that individuals need um, to prevent those deaths. Yeah, those, those are numbers that really do tell a story um, and it's quite alarming to hear them right out like that and think about that from a Scottish perspective. Um, so Lee, what do the current numbers tell us about the situation here in Scotland just now? What's happening on the ground that you know of? Okay, so there have been some fairly big increases in the numbers of drug-related deaths in recent years. Uh, there was a 5% increase between 2019 and 2020, but overall the past decade has been marked by quite steep increases year on year in the number of deaths. 
Yeah, the patterns are fairly consistent though over time. So around 90% of people, um, when they're tested, when the drugs are tested after they have died, about 90% of people have opioids um, present in their body at the time of death and and have those drugs implicated in death. So by opioids, I mean uh, heroin, um, methadone, um, dihydrocodone, codeine, and so on. So a whole group of drugs there which have obviously a pain-killing effect, also but a sedative effect, an effect on reducing um, breathing as well. So what we see generally is that many of the deaths are associated with respiratory depression. Um, and, and what we find is in addition to these opioid drugs, people are also taking uh, benzodiazepines, which in recent times have shifted from pharmaceutical drugs like diazepam to uh, street drugs, which are manufactured illicitly, such as itizolam, diclazepam, and so on. Um, Alprazolam is another example of this. Um, and in 2020, we saw that two-thirds of uh, people who had died had these street benzodiazepines implicated in their deaths. Um, so across the, 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 the deaths in recent years, that we, we see that there's an older age group who've been dying. So in any single year for the past 20 years or so, and we see that roughly around 200 deaths each year are among people who are under 35, and the rest of them are among those who are older than 35. Or um, And so a lot of the increase we've seen over time has been from this older age group. Uh, they're people often who've been using drugs, drugs problematically for, for a number of years, um, Many of them have got recent uh, medical conditions, psychiatric conditions, and so on. Um, and we see that just generally the comorbidities, the growing illness of people who are who are using drugs, and uh, you know they're criminalised because of their behaviour, and they're they're, they're they're living a life that um, isn't easy on them, um, is is leading to that vulnerability to to death, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so those are the general patterns. Um, we are obviously just trying to um, understand the different causes there and uh, trying to intervene and prevent the deaths in the best way that we can uh, by releasing better data, improved data for prevention purposes. So I'm hearing a few different sort of patterns in there. You're talking about the age of the drug users. You're talking about the variety of different drugs that they're using and if we bring back in what Emma was saying about Scotland space as an outlier here I'm kind of curious to know how that compares to other countries that pattern where is it that Scotland starts to become different Do we have we done any investigation on that sense? Um, so we know that I think Emma spoke about the rates compared to other UK countries earlier but when we look across Europe we see that Scotland's rate of drug-related death is um, quite significantly higher than any other countries. Um, so I think based on 2019 figures with a specific definition, which is quite technical, I won't go into that, Scotland had 318 uh, deaths per million adults. And the next highest using the same definition was Sweden with 77 per million. So it's quite some way above uh, any other country in Europe. And when we look internationally, we're about on a par uh, potentially with America, uh, which has obviously had a, a big um, yeah, synthetic opioids problem, particularly fentanyl uh, contamination um, over there. 
Um, and, and obviously a lot of issues there with pharmaceutical opioids as well, like oxycodone and so on. But they were sitting around 216 per million uh, in 2019. And British Columbia in Canada were around 343 uh, deaths per million in 2020. So um, it's a very, very, um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult comparison. These are difficult figures to hear. But I mean, I, I think there is there is a sense there that Scotland is... is um, on a par with with countries that are suffering the worst drug-related death epidemics in the world at the moment. So it re really is a, a, a big problem. But I should say that um, the definitions that we use and the ways of counting the deaths in different countries, are uh, they can differ quite widely. So um, certainly we, we see in America, uh, sorry, in British Columbia and Canada that they have really... Um, uh, got a hold of the public health crisis there and have really mobilized a lot of resources to try to understand the problem in a lot of detail to ensure that they're measuring it the best they can and testing for drugs in the best way that they can. Uh, we can't say the same of every single country. I mean, I think Sweden was mentioned there. And uh, I think there was, there was a paper some time ago that compared Scotland rates to the rest of Europe uh, countries in Northern Europe, in fact, and I think it was recognised that Sweden had improved their testing at a certain time, and therefore they were beginning to detect more deaths than they had before. So different testing regimes, different pathology approaches can change the numbers quite significantly. But I, I don't think any of these are, um, I don't think any of these would reduce the numbers that we're seeing in Scotland, where we count the numbers very consistently, we test for them very consistently. So there's, there's, um, it doesn't undermine the comparison in any way there, certainly, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting international um, comparison. I think it's a good time to talk about the sort of data sources and approach that we use here. So could you tell us a little bit about those? What sort of data sources are we using to really understand what's happening in Scotland just now? We use a variety of data sources in Scotland. Um, when uh, a drug death occurs, it starts a process where we begin to investigate where the Crown Office in Scotland will investigate the death and they will ask for toxicology screening to be done and then a pathology examination. Um, these details are, so this process will take around three to six months to complete and the details are then passed back to National Records of Scotland who register the death in their death registration database. Um, and they, th this is the source of the national statistics which are produced in Scotland, and they come out roughly every sort of July and August. Okay, um, what we also do in Scotland is to have a further database called the National Drug Related Death Database, and this is completed. Um, we we have a network of, of drug related death data coordinators working in local NHS boards in Scotland, and they collect the information uh, from the various local systems in order to review the cases and have a, have a case review process locally uh, where they can try to extract learning from what might have been done to help prevent the death uh, in that area. If the person was engaged with uh, uh, drug treatment, uh, were they getting the right kind of support? What adverse events have recently happened for the individual and so on, just to try to understand it in a bit more detail so on and so this information that they collect locally is also reported to public health scotland and logged into the national drug related death database and in addition to that we've also recently began to work with police scotland to get their information on suspected drug related deaths um 
Emma, would you like to say something about that? Yep. So suspected drug-related death um, is um, a source of more timely data. Um, so as Lee was just explaining there, um, the National Records of Scotland um, drug-related death data, that follows on the back of toxicology and pathology tests. Um, obviously, that takes time to process. Um, whereas the key when we talk about the Police Scotland data is the suspected drug-related death. So that's officers attending um, the scene of death. Um, if they suspect um, drugs have been implicated in that death. Um, so that's um, prior knowledge of the drug use um, by the individual um, or there's drug use paraphernalia um, at the scene of death. It's recorded as a suspected drug-related death. Um, and we've done some work to um, test whether that's a good predictor of um, the confirmed drug-related deaths that National uh, Records of Scotland publish, um, and we're comfortable that it is um, a reasonable predictor. Um, so we're using, um, we're working and collaborating with Police Scotland to use the suspected drug-related death as that more timely source of data. Um, so we're getting to see the trend um, before those finalised um, confirmed drug-related deaths um, data is um, published. Um, and we started um, using what's called statistical process control methodology on the suspected drug um, death information. And the purposes of this um, statistical process control methodology is to objectively identify where we're seeing an increasing trend in drug death. And so the police are integrating that approach um, in their operational systems and data recording systems um, so that we can identify that increasing trend quickly um, and um, implement a re response um, and start investigating the where and the how and the why um, behind that increasing trend. That's really interesting. It's particularly sensitive, the data around this area as well. So what sort of barriers are we um are we finding and really understanding situation through data? I guess one of the key barriers is the, the sensitivity, because obviously um, it's sort of illegal behaviour associated with aspects of drug use. Um, so, you know, you're not, um, there's a sort of cultural stigma uh, around drug use. And so there's that judgmental um piece where people don't want to be reaching out for help for the fear of judgment and uh, being criticised. Um, so generally, we're only really able to capture data when um, individuals are making contact with um, health services or social care services or the like. Um, and that's typically at points of crises. So that's when they're suffering harm from drug use. Um, and I also just touched on sort of the timeliness of data um, when I was talking about suspected versus your confirmed um, drug-related deaths. Um, so, you know, that gives the data a ret, ret the data's 
quite retrospective. Um, so there's a lag period. There's, you know, there's three, six months until we're getting that data through as confirmed deaths. And so how do you, you can't really respond quickly when data um, involves lag periods um, such as that. Um, there's the issue of the increasing number of drug-related deaths. So obviously, you need more resource to be processing um, that information to perform those toxicology pathology tests on increasing numbers. Um, so obviously, that comes with the, the funding issue and matching the funding to the the demand of the processing all this data and analysis for it. Um, Lee touched upon the um, National Drug Death Database and how we collate data from all the health boards across Scotland. Um, so we have variation there in the approach of those um, drug death reviews. Um, so, you know, there's that challenge of trying to standardise what data is being collected and how it's being um, collected and analysed. Um, and then we've got information governance challenges. So the idea of sharing data because it's sensitive and we've got to make sure that we're not releasing data that enables individuals to be identified. And there's um, a whole series of protocols and um, regulation behind how we um, present that information um, and what becomes available in the public domain and what um, needs to be kept um, from being disclosed. Um, so we have to be quite strict in how we process the information. Um, and then obviously, more recently, the COVID pandemic has obviously um, seen a lot of resource being redirected to the COVID response um, and uh, changes in uh, provision of services and access to services. So it's balancing that demand over and above the everyday response. Um, so a multitude of <laughs> barriers. It's not an <laughs> easy space through. that you're working in. It's really not easy. Um, and one of the things that comes through to me listening to what you're saying and the challenges that you're discussing is that by the time you're recording the data point of a drug-related death, your ability to intervene is pretty much gone. It's too late. So ideally, you would want to be able to sort of predict yeah. what was going to happen, people who were at risk, and that's much more difficult almost. I think yeah. we are trying to get into that area, though. So, um, yeah, Emma was mentioning about the information is very sensitive and it's also very slow as well to come into Public Health Scotland. So. Um, one of the, I, th I think recently, I think a couple of years ago, that there were a few problems with uh, the testing of information or the testing of drugs, of, of post-mortem toxicology, the information coming from that process. Um, and that led to some significant delays with the publication of the National Records of Scotland report, the National Statistics on Drug-Related Deaths. But that's now normalised now. But I think that really highlighted to people that the information wasn't coming out the information flow wasn't fast enough in Scotland. And that's certainly uh, um, an issue that we've had with the National Drug-Related Death Database that we produce from Public Health Scotland. Um, we've seen that as the numbers of drug-related deaths have risen, 
the NHS board funding to collect the information on the drug-related deaths and then submit it to Public Health Scotland has uh, not kept pace with that. And so we've gone from a situation where we had all the data coming into Public Health Scotland fairly quickly within you know, six to nine months or a year or something to a situation where we're still experiencing problems 18 months after the after the year of the death. Um, so we've been trying to put in place some uh, fixes for that. We've been working through a process with a short life working group to uh, talk about the issues with the delays to the publication there. And what we've found is that via that, that process of, of talking about it with the short life working group, we've identified that there's the information that we produce in that report is valuable. Um, it's, it's information that people are interested, that we feel relates to the risks that people face. Um, but the, the speed of the publication and the impact of the publication are, are lacking. Uh, it's just what you said there. It's failing to really tackle the problem in a timely kind of way. Um, so that publication only comes out once every two years. And I think that's one of the main recommendations that it should be coming out annually. Um, it, um, has been rather slow to appear in the past and so one of the other recommendations was that it should be published within a year of within one year of the year of death if that makes sense so if somebody had died in 2020 then we should be seeing that publication by the end of the following year um but also the more timely summary statistics on on the numbers of deaths should be appearing more frequently and so the information that Emma was speaking about around suspected drug-related deaths, we've been working with the Scottish Government, with National Records of Scotland, ourselves, uh, Public Health Scotland, and with Police Scotland as well, to produce a quarterly statistic uh, that just provides an indication of the numbers of deaths in each quarter of, of the year um, that can, as Emma was saying, be used as some kind of predictor for what those confirmed numbers might look like so that we've got a more regular information flow uh, coming out in Scotland. Um, just releasing data on this massive public health issue once every 12 to 18 months is simply not enough. And I think we've reflected on that and are trying to improve the situation. So what sorts of things then are you being able to put in place? How, how, how have these collaborations been progressing over the last few months and, and all the work that you've been putting in um, on this area? Um, it's been going really well. I mean, the, the short life working group process I mentioned there was something that we did in collaboration with people with lived experience, with families. Um, we had a range of different um, inputs from people who were involved in the process from toxicology, uh, the Crown Office, um, Scottish government, academic partners, um, people from charities and so on, a really, really wide range of people and participants. So it really felt like a collaborative uh, process for examining uh, drug death reporting in Scotland and making some uh, you know, realistic recommendations for how we can improve things. Um, Emma, would you like to say something about the Police Scotland work as well? Yep, so the um, suspected drug-related death and the statistical process control methodology, so that process of where we're trying to objectively identify increasing trends in drug deaths, um, we're looking to integrate that into um, a forthcoming um, public health um, surveillance system um, that's called RADAR, so Rapid Action Drug Alerts and Response. Um, so that surveillance system will be using the suspected drug-related death data 
in combination with other data um, to identify um, when we've got um, high levels of death or high levels of drug harm um, to identify those risks quickly um, and to collaborate with care providers and health providers sort of on the ground in local areas um, for a basis of action to try and prevent these harms, prevent these, these deaths. So it's that bringing the, the recent data into the local areas to create that impact, to create that response, to try and prevent those deaths. So, at, you know, we're not seeing these high levels of death because we're able to react, respond more quickly. Uh, and have you looked at the figures through an angle of things like deprivation in Scotland? Is, is there a high correlation between areas of deprivation and areas where drug-related deaths are more common? Yeah, that's one of the facets that we see consistently within the data. So in the National Drug-Related Death Database, and I think now in the National Records of Scotland publication, we, we, we both now publish information on the deprivation of those who've died. Um, the information that we have in the National Drug-Related Death Database says that I think just over 50% of people each year um, live in the most 20% most deprived communities in Scotland. So in the uh, most deprived uh, quintile of communities in Scotland. Um, and, and that's a pattern that's consistent. And the of, of the remaining 80% of people who die, many of them also live in, in, the, in the next most deprived quintile of Scotland. So um, it is a very consistent pattern over time. Um, you know, in, in terms of deprivation, though, it's just one of the risk factors that we do observe in the data. Um, we see a high prevalence of, um, yeah, there's that structural inequality there, but we also see a high prevalence of, of adverse childhood experiences in the data. Um, we collect information there on recent significant experiences, and we see lots of bereavement. People who have children taken away from, from them, um, for instance, mothers who've, who've got children taken into care. We, we, we see an awful lot of things in there that, that you know, re really are very sad and it becomes quite, um, you know, it's easy to see why some people might in, in those circumstances look for something to ease their pain and so on. And, and unfortunately, it has a, a bad outcome in many cases. Um, so I think in terms of the response there, we, we do generally try to look at a consistent set of indicators in the data that we have often around deprivation and so on, certainly looking at other comorbidities, uh, medical and psychiatric and so on, just to try to track these different influences on, on people's drug use and the outcomes there. But I think one of the difficulties that we have in the data is really trying to find the cause of a specific cause of a drug-related death can be very, very complicated because as well as all these background factors, you've also got um, just a wide range of contextual factors as well uh, as situational factors. So there can be things like um, Structural factors like the amount of investment that there is in, in drug services can restrict, uh, and the approach that the people in the drug services might take to people can restrict people's involvement, participation in their in their care and their treatment and so on. So we see people dropping out of treatment over time. And 
I think that we've now putting in Scot in Scotland, we're now putting in a response to that in terms of medically assisted treatment. But this has been a problem for some time. I think that people's engagement with treatment varies over time. And in periods where they're in treatment, they're more protected against bad outcomes like drug-related death than when they're not in treatment. So in addition to those context, those uh, structural factors, we also have the contextual things as well. So a person may um, simply use more drugs um, prior to a drug-related death. They, they, may, they may have picked up some drugs that were mixed, cut in the wrong kind of way, had something in them, an ingredient, a drug they weren't expecting, or that were unusually potent or something like that. Or they may end up in a situation where they perhaps uh, suffer some kind of overdose, but they're not around other people who who are um, conscious and able to intervene at the time. So we've seen a big increase in Scotland in recent times in the uh, supply of take-home naloxone, but it does need somebody to be there conscious just able to intervene and to have the drug at hand in order to save the person's life. And when people uh, use together and they, they don't take certain you know, specific harm reduction steps to perhaps um, wait a little while before they use their drugs after a friend has done the same thing, then they perhaps put themselves in, 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 in a more risky situation than might otherwise have been the case. So, um, yeah, there are lots of individual factors there, and it's really hard to unpick what the specific causes might be in each case. We are involved uh, working with some colleagues from the University of Glasgow uh, to try to understand this in a bit more detail. And what they're doing is um, a program of work that looks at the syndemics of, of the situation. So uh, syndemic is, is, is a, a syndemic is an a synergistic ep- epidemic is the aggregation of two or more concurrent sequential epidemics or disease clusters in the population, um, which exacerbates the prognosis and burden of that disease. So this typically relates to things like when you have uh, conditions of inequality and then you've got perhaps something um two different things going on in that population. So if you have an epidemic of drug use and you also have an epidemic of, say, blood-borne viruses that relates to the drug use, then the impact of the two things together can be quite significantly larger than just each of the things separately. So, yeah, we're working alongside uh, some people from University of Glasgow in that. It's a really kind of exciting bit of work. And they're using the data from the National Drug-Related Death Database and doing uh, lots of um, looking at different conditions there and the clusters of them and the ways in which they're associated to try to um, work with people and design interventions to hopefully uh, try to prevent drug-related deaths going forward. It's a massively complex, difficult space, isn't it? What I'm hearing from you is that there's massive structural factors, the deprivation probably exacerbated by factors like loneliness and access to green space, access to exercise, You've got the individual and their circumstances. So you touched on the trauma that they've had in the past. Sometimes it's brought through um, that. And then you've got the sort of the the general context in which the drug use might be happening, where they might be alone and isolated. Um, The quality of the um, drugs that they're using is absolutely unregulated and they can't haven't got any real control over the dosage that they're taking day to day. So you can see why it's it's a very risky space and it, it might occur in these tragic um, it, it may end up in these tragic um, events and, and clearly does. Taking all that, there does seem to be a few spaces where there's potential leverage to do things better. So have, having kind of identified that, um, is, is there space then where there's been any sort of 
clear intervention in Scotland where are any pockets of good practice or spaces where we've, we've tried out a pilot scheme where something has gone has been able to make a difference? Yeah, I think we've got a few different areas where we've got a bit of um, a prospect of making a real difference in Scotland. Um, I think that although you know we do have a quite a high number, of, uh, you know, bearing in mind the population of people with prob problematic drug use, um, and that's leading to a high number of deaths. Um, there's more public awareness now of the issue than there was in the past. So. Um, I think when the figures started to get really, really high a few years ago, uh, certainly we're passing the 1,000 mark in terms of drug-related deaths. There was a recognition by the government, uh, particularly that the situation was becoming a public health crisis. And the, really the, the, the dialogue, the terminology, the media focus has all helped really there to focus minds and to recognize that something needs to be done about this problem. That um, And that's generated quite a political will to intervene. So I think while we've seen some funding decreases, uh, say going back five years ago uh, in, in terms of drug treatment services, that situation's now been reversed. And we've seen we've seen things like the, the, the um, Scottish government strategy, Rights, Respect and Recovery, and the National Mission, which is a new initiative uh, headed by the First Minister and Drugs Minister, really trying to tackle um, the problem. Uh, we've seen a recent treatment target. We've seen um, a national um, naloxone promotion campaign, so really trying to broaden awareness of of uh, drug-related overdoses and uh, try to encourage people to be carrying naloxone, and, and not just people who are um, using drugs, but also those members of the public who might be able to intervene. So we've seen posters on the back of buses and, and radio and TV ads trying to promote this. So I think there's, there's certainly progress in, in those types of areas. And hopefully we can use that as a platform for reducing the stigma associated with drug use um, and just really trying to promote awareness of the problem here. I mean, these aren't, um, I think one of the problems is mainly stigma people are less likely to come to their doctor and say, I've been using drugs or alcohol. We kind of have this thing in Scotland. I don't think it's peculiar to Scotland, but we're quite guarded about the amount that we drink or, you know, if we, if we had used drugs or something like that. So I think just the public awareness will be really helpful at breaking down that stigma a little bit, making people feel that they can, they can talk openly about it. Um, and I think just in general, we've had that willingness in recent years with the task force, uh, the Scottish Drug, Drugs Death Task Force, to also think about other solutions as well. So we've certainly taken a more critical stance in relation to the Misuse of Drugs Act um, and, and, and looking at the effects of criminalization there on people who use drugs, perhaps viewing uh, which, which I think is, is 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 a much better stance of viewing the issue as a health issue and not a, a justice issue. Um, so I think if we contrast the the narrative in Scotland with that in England and Wales, um, it's very much more health focused. It's not justice focused. It's not about punishment and so on. It's not about judgment. It's about help and support and treatment, which I think are positive values that we've got to recognise as as um, being valuable. In the, in the context and setting in which we are now. Um, and so we've had a more much more open debate up here around the potential to use drug consumption rooms and what that might look like. And you know, really 
an open approach to evaluating the evidence from other countries about the efficacy of these things rather than just dismissing them because they might be condoning drug use or all the other fears that we hear about. So, um, yeah, just, just a more open approach really, I think, is evident up here. So there is potential there. Things are heading in the right direction on that kind of social political level. But unfortunately, we do have this quite entrenched background of social differences there and, and inequality, uh, which is still continuing to, um, you know, um, produce these harms at that kind of macro level there. Yeah, it's such an important point about stigma. I know, Emma, you brought that one that up earlier on. Is there anything you'd like to add to what Lee said there? Um. <laughs> I think he covered it quite well there. Um, but yeah, I think it is that change in mindset, uh, um, moving away from the sort of judging and the blame and the the focus on the, the, the illegal, the criminal activity and that moving into a supportive um, environment and providing help and seeing it as a public health issue um, that needs that, that resource and support. Um, and inviting people to ask for help and demonstrating that they will receive help um, when they want to engage um, and are happy and prepared, uh, ready to seek help. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's an awful lot of benefits to getting this right. And obviously the, the health of the individuals affected and their general well-being is an important part of that. Um, so let's talk about what sort of benefits we could achieve by making all the changes to the data collection and the, the um, integration of data from different sources and all the great the work that you've been putting in. What is it ultimately that you hope to achieve from all that? Well, we've got a number of different initiatives that we've spoken a bit about. Um, I think that when we, you know, in, in this context, we see that people are, can be quite reluctant to provide their data. Um, um, I think Emma was saying that we, you know, what, what we have is not a typical patient journey when we think about drug use. We have um, people, we get people's data when they're in treatment. So when they've reached a certain point and they recognize that they need help and they uh, contact their drug services or their GP or something, they may be prescribed methadone or buprenorphine if they are uh, having opioid use issues. Um, or they maybe have other types of support if they're using other types of drugs. Um, so we get that data there. Um, and we also get data when people come to harm. But neither of these really represent a typical patient journey in that, you know, there is a certain amount of unwillingness there to really um, provide data on progress. And, and this stigma that we do see uh, really enhances this situation where people aren't open about their drug use and don't want to talk about it until it becomes so out of hand that they they may fear they will come to harm or, or you know their family may um, be impacted. Um, so I think that's the key really in terms of getting this right is for really to realize a benefit there for those individuals who are at risk of harm. Um, but we are kind of faced with this difficult context of collecting and analysing the data that we do hold and, and the fact that we don't hold very much data in, in some instances. So um, as I said, we've been working through the short life working group process there to, with, with the drug death reporting to really look at the impact of the, of the um, publication that we produce and the timeliness and the impact of the statistics as a whole 
and the use of the figures uh, going forward. So we're looking there at improving the, the frequency of publication. And we also have a range of different recommendations about improving the accessibility of the publication there. So we've typically the National Drug Related Death Database Report has, has been quite an academic focused um, piece of work. It's been a very lengthy report with lots of different tables in the back. Um, that cover every single aspect of the different causes, the potential issues that we've been speaking about. But what we really need to do is to review the data set there to ensure that we're keeping it up to date and that the issues that we're asking questions about are appropriate, that people feel that they are important given the issue at hand. Um, and we really need to make better use of things like data linkage as well to use the, the data that we hold in other areas and bring that into the database to make the lives of the people collecting the data somewhat easier to make the whole thing quicker to produce and therefore more likely to have an impact and help prevent deaths going forward. Um, we've also, as part of that process, been working with people with lived experience and with representatives of families of those who've lost loved one. Um, and we've recognized that the, the report that we produce is not really hitting all the right notes for them. So we're also working to try to come up with something um, that is a bit more user-friendly, a bit more plain English, and helps to appeal to a broader range of audiences. That's a bit more focused on the action that we're doing to prevent drug-related deaths rather than just talking about X percent of the, the cohort in this year was higher than the, the the same cohort in the previous year and so on. So there's a lot of really valuable stuff there that we hope to do going forward. And obviously, uh, capturing the learning from the syndemic uh, study that I was talking about earlier as well, and really focusing on, on, on the things that were found to be important as part of that could be really valuable going forward. There's also some things about drug linkage that I want to speak about. So we... Um, we're in the midst of a, a, a program to link up the existing data sources that we hold about drug use and drug harms in Scotland. So we're linking up information from our drug treatment databases, uh, from hospital admission databases where there's been a drug-related um, stay in hospital, um, from our prescribing databases, so where we see people who've been prescribed opioid substitution therapy, so methadone or buprenorphine, and also where there has been a drug-related death, linking up all of those data sources to try to identify a cohort of people who use drugs problematically, and really then using that information to, uh, you know, because it seems to me it's like piece, it's like a jigsaw, you know. We we only have certain pieces of the jigsaw and we try to fit them together the best way that we can. But there's an awful lot of lost pieces there that we don't see. So we kind of see a broad picture there and there are lots of gaps, bits of information and insights that we don't currently have. So we're hoping to use this information as the basis of estimating the numbers of people with problematic drug use. So a drug prevalence study going forward. And we've got a piece of work there with Bristol University to do that very thing. Um, looking at identifying the numbers of people who are injecting drug use so we can uh, look at the uh, proportion of the population who are susceptible, vulnerable to bloodborne viruses. Um, also using the data to enhance the publications that we produce and hopefully, therefore, having an impact upon people's understanding of the issue. Um, so there's a range of different programs, processes, research projects that we want to use these data for, really just to try to enhance people's understanding of the situation. Um, we, in, in, in the kind of very data world, can't really have a direct impact on uh, 
you know, reducing, preventing a specific death or, or a specific harm. But we can try to influence attitudes at the macro level and try to get people to understand the situation, have a bit more empathy uh, and reduce stigma overall. And that's really important. Yes, I think it is. Um, so thank you very much for that summary. That was um, really good. Um, I think we'd like to stop, sort of end looking at our strengths. So Scotland, we've identified as an outlier in this area, but let's think about what strengths we have um, and that we can bring to the table as, an, as a society um, to tackle this issue. Emma, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think it's that um, culture shift towards the appetite to want to help and seeing this as a public health issue um, and I think Lee mentioned there briefly the medically assisted treatment um, guidelines that have recently um, been published that's working towards best practice um, across Scotland and supporting areas um, to implement um, access um, to services um, to help people with problematic drug use um, and to provide that supporting environment. Um, and what do you see as our key strengths in Scotland, Lee? In, I think that um, in recent years, the past couple of years during the pandemic, we've seen a big increase in the collaboration. So um, we were already we already had the the, the Scottish. Drug Desk Task Force. Um, I think that was established around 2019. Um, and that's really helped to bring forward the collaboration between ourselves, Public Health Scotland, and between other public bodies and, and just other stakeholders in the space. So um, um, we've seen a, quite a few initiatives there under the auspices of the task force that have really helped uh, to have an impact there. So I think from the early days of the task force, we've seen them particularly getting involved in the distribution of naloxone to reduce drug-related deaths. So there's been a collaboration there with the Scottish Ambulance Service, a pilot by them, to uh, as well as administer naloxone, which they've done for, for people suffering the symptoms of an overdose for many, many years. So now also... Um, uh, supplying naloxone to people at the scene of the of the overdose and to maybe those people who suffered the overdose as well to try to prevent them going forward. And that's turned from a, a very small pilot into a much bigger uh, program of work that they're doing consistently across the whole country. The task force has also been instrumental in um, collaborating with Police Scotland to get their officers to carry naloxone. Um, so there was some initial resistance there, but I think as public awareness has grown and so on, that's really uh, broken down a few barriers there. And we've seen uh, a growing interest from, from the police there in, in, in making this a universal scheme across Scotland, which is, is obviously a great thing. You know, the role of first responders in intervening and preventing deaths is something that needs to be recognised. And I think the also the uh, Scottish Fire and Rescue Service and now taxi drivers in Glasgow are also carrying the Loxone. So those have been really quite recent initiatives. In, specifically in relation to COVID, Although it's been quite problematic in some areas in that we've been uh, seeing a number of impacts on people who use drugs, um, for instance, a lot of the bloodborne virus testing capacity um, was reduced, people's prescribing patterns were reduced, and contact with drug services that's preventive uh, against harm and against drug-related death has been impacted, obviously, by the pandemic. Um, 
So there are lots of very negative things that have happened there. But it's also seen a bit of a, a change in the way that drug services often interact with, the, with people uh, with problematic drug use, more use of mobile t- technologies, um, less requirement to perhaps uh, attend pharmacies to have medic- uh, methadone uh, administration supervised every day. So a bit more flexibility there, a bit more flexibility with face-to-face appointments. So I think some of that is really, really important. The value of that needs to be recognized and we need to take the good bits away from that and, and carry on using them in ways that will, will benefit people uh, who are in treatment. Um, so, And I think it's also been quite a good space for collaboration in recent times because I think the recognition of the potential impact of the pandemic has led to more and more collaborations between ourselves and different organizations. So Emma mentioned earlier the collaboration with Police Scotland. Um, We've also in Public Health Scotland been producing a report that really tracks the impact of the pandemic on people who use drugs in terms of the numbers of drug-related deaths, um, injecting equipment provision, uh, the numbers of hospital admissions and things like that. And rather than, it seems that we're now beginning hopefully to approach the end of the pandemic. And so um, I think we're looking at transitioning that work out of the pandemic space and putting it more into the public health surveillance space so we can see this as part of the radar initiative that Emma was speaking about and see these really as as, as kind of aspects of early warning um, so that when we're seeing an increase in harms and so on, we can be on on the front foot and really trying to respond to them and alert other organisations to, to uh, emerging drug harms and so on. So in if there is a silver lining to be taken from the pandemic, it's that it has fostered collaboration and more data sharing between different partners. You know, obviously with all the right information, governance and protections there uh, in place. But yeah, I think we have seen a bit more openness around about the public health crisis there to really share information for the good of the population. Yeah, there's a lot of examples of good practice there. So we've been talking for a while. I think it's time to draw the conversation to a close. So let me start by thanking you very much for your time today, Lee and Emma. It's been a pleasure talking to you. So it's been fascinating to hear about all the good work you've been doing at PHS and putting in at this area, because working in data, you do get to tackle many different sorts of problems. And sometimes there is an opportunity to use your skills to make a real impact to someone's lives. It can sometimes feel like it's happening at arm's length, though, and sometimes we need to take time to remember the real people who are impacted by the things they do. But the great work that you're doing collaborating across different industries is a really good way to leverage the strengths that we have and hopefully make a real difference in this area. So if you've been listening so far, thank you very much for coming with us on this topic. Obviously, this is a very sensitive subject and I'm sure there'll be people out there with direct experience of the issues that we've discussed. If that is you, we'll curate some links for some places you might go for help and support and we'll include them in the podcast description. Thanks again for listening and all the best for whatever you're doing next.